One of the things that uh, I, I, I've heard before is that I have an obsession with the return of Jesus Christ. Um, and to that, I say thank you, right? And uh, I know a lot of people are like, man, you know, all you want to talk about is the end times and the return of Jesus and all these, you know, these passages in Scripture that, you know, depict this, this end day, these last days and all the things that are associated with it. And, and guys, I mean, the, where I am right now is that if, if we do live to see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're, if we're the generation living to see that, I mean, that should be the yearning of your heart. And, and either way, whether we come with him or, or he comes while we're still here on this earth living, um, it is going to be the day of all days. It's going to be the greatest day in human history when all things are, all of the evil in this world are brought to an end. And Jesus Christ is finally back on earth in physical form as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, yes, I guess if you want to ask or you want to say it that way, yes, I do have uh, an obsession uh, with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that through this study, you will too. I hope that you will develop an obsession with the return of Jesus Christ, not so that you can tell people everything that's going to happen and have all the answers, but so that you will love him more. So that you will begin to, to love Jesus so much and, and that your love for him will grow in such a way that it changes the way that you live your life so that we make the most of the days. We make the most of every opportunity until he comes. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that. But, but one of the things I want to encourage you with, I have a lot of notes today, a lot of scriptures today. I know that you guys, some of you last week said you moved too fast and and I'm sorry, I'm trying to break this down as much as I possibly can. Um, so just try to keep up. If you can't keep up, again, you'll get the notes. You'll get, you'll get everything that you need to kind of follow up with. Um, and so I know sometimes it feels like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant. And it's just like I can't really process all this information. Uh, but I promise you guys, I, I, try to, I try to use as much scripture as I possibly can in these, in these messages. Because I want you to see that the book of Revelation is, a, is, is the culmination and compilation of all of Scripture and that you're going to just see how everything in Scripture is being revealed and, and it points us to what we read in these pages of this amazing prophecy. And so um, that's kind of where we are and, and uh, what we have to deal with. But uh, as we work through today, we're going to be actually getting into the book of Revelation. Last week was an introduction. I tried to cover some of the, the background and the author and the date and some of those important things and how do we interpret the scripture and those things, uh, the symbolism in the scripture? Today, we're going to actually begin looking at chapter one. And so if you have a copy of God's word or if you have your, your Bible app or whatever it is, go ahead and just open to the book of Revelation chapter one. So we're going to go ahead and get started. So first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, that's Bond servants, uh, I said that last week, doulos, things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, let me say something about this real quick because we touched on this a little bit last week, but another thing that I think it's easy to be accused of when you're teaching prophecy is that sometimes you can be 
thought of as just being a negative person, pessimistic. Because when you read the, the words of the prophecy, in whether it be the Old Testament or what, we, what we're going to be looking at here in the book of Revelation, guys, there are some difficult things. There are some scary things. There, there are some monumental, epic things unfolding that will happen, that, that must come to pass in the last days. And if, again, my heart and my desire as a pastor is to prepare you for what is coming. Now, here's the good news. The blessing that we get in Revelation 1-3 is this, is that we're blessed if we read aloud, we hear the words, and we keep the words of this prophecy. So here's what I want to encourage you with. Yes, there are difficult times coming. Yes, these things must soon take place. Yes, we will be in the midst of it. But here's the good news. You still can be blessed. You still can be blessed. It is not, it's not despair. It's not woe is me. It's not, oh no, you know, there's no purpose in my life anymore. No, guys, there's a special blessing for God's people who are enduring these things. And so I want to I remind you of that and encourage you with that, okay? Now, here's the greeting. So John, given the book of Revelation, he's given the word, and this is the greeting he gives to the seven churches, and it's a greeting he gives to you today. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So already we're seeing some interesting things. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you is that the book of Revelation is an epistle. Now, if you don't know what an epistle is, Paul, uh, Peter, John, the book of Hebrews, they were all epistles. That means they were letters written with a pastoral tone to the church. A pastor has a, a heart for his people. A pastor wants to shepherd his people. So yes, the book of Revelation is full of prophecy. Yes, the book of Revelation is full of this apocalyptic literature that's all the crazy signs and symbols and mysteries and puzzles. Yes, it does include all that. But at the end of the day, don't forget, the book of Revelation is a pastoral letter to who? To the church. To the seven churches that were there in John's day and also subsequently to every single church of every generation, which means who? It means us today. So we can't miss that very important thing. This is a letter from Jesus given to John to the churches, which include you and me today. So there is a very important pastoral element to these churches. Again, very important that we understand that. So we see there the map of these seven churches in, uh, that are, we'll get into in many weeks to come in, in the book of Revelation. And these were seven literal historic churches in John's day. Unfortunately, these churches are now in what's called modern-day Turkey, which is a Muslim-majority nation. Guys, these churches don't exist anymore. Jesus gave every church a warning. He said, unless you repent, I will remove my what? My lampstand from you. Well, somewhere along the way, these churches, even though they did last for many generations in this ancient Asia Minor context, guys, eventually the lampstand was removed and now they don't exist anymore. Now, what is the significance about Turkey? Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but I do think that you need to perk up. If you have anything to do with reading BBC or World News or 
Find out what's going on, not just in America. You need to be paying attention to what's going on in the Middle East, guys. If you don't know it right now, Turkey is emerging as the Middle Eastern superpower in the world. Turkey is the empire right now underneath uh, Erdogan, who's their, their president. Erdogan wants to revive the Ottoman Empire, which was the greatest Muslim empire on earth. He wants to reestablish and revise the Islamic caliphate. He has said this publicly. He is saying this uh, quite frequently, and he has the manpower to do it. And he is emerging right now, and he's making very important military strategic moves in the Middle East right now to gain more power in the Middle East. It just is interesting to me that these, in other words, why would the Lord give us these seven churches that all were right here in Western Turkey today, and now we see that Turkey is emerging as one of the great Middle Eastern superpowers in the world. There is a reason for that. Pay attention. Not only that, we know in Ezekiel 38 and 39 Turkey, which is Magog, Meshach, Tubal, that's Turkey, that's ancient Turkey, that is the region involved with the emergence of the Antichrist. I'll just give you a little teaser there. We're not going to go into that today, but these churches in Asia Minor are there, and I think God wants to give us a little bit of an attention. Geographically, they were there for a reason, and we should be paying attention to that today, okay? I'm not going to spend too much time there. Because I'm going to jump into this. This is, what, this is some of the fun stuff that we like to talk about in the book of Revelation. First thing, okay, I had some problems last week. Some of y'all said, you moved too fast. I didn't get to fill in my blanks. All right? Here you go, blank number one. We discover in the book of Revelation a heptatic thread. Bet you didn't think about how to use that word, did you? Heptad. What is a heptad? It's a group of seven, okay? In the Hebrew, it's called a Shabua. Everybody say Shabua. I don't know. I just like saying that word. Shabua. A Shabua is a group of seven. Okay, we see it in Daniel chapter 9, about seven, the 70 weeks of Daniel. We'll see that in just a second. But there's a heptatic thread that runs throughout the entire Bible, not just Revelation, the entire Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, where the number seven is uniquely emphasized. We see this already here in the first few verses of Revelation, it says that they, he's writing a letter to the seven churches, and then he talks about the seven spirits who are before the throne of God. So let's talk about this for just a second. What is the significance of the number seven in the scriptures? Well, let me give you a couple of things to think about. The number seven, or an exact multiple of seven, because this is what's interesting about Scripture. It can be the number seven or a multiple of seven is found throughout the Scripture and is widely recognized. God uses numerical patterns to draw threads or connections throughout the Scripture. The biblical connotation of the number seven is this. And what do I mean? This is what a biblical definition of the number seven is. The number seven means completion, perfection, conclusion, or rest, okay? It means completion, perfection, conclude to bring things to a conclusion or rest, all right? Now, I'm going to challenge you. We're fixing to go through some of these today because I, I think they're interesting. I'm going to challenge you. I want you, as you're reading the Bible in general or studying the book of Revelation, I want you to try to find out how many different sevens you can discover, 
I still believe to this day you'll never get to the end of it. I believe to this day there's never an end to the number of sevens that God reveals to us in his word. All right, let me give you some scriptural proof of this. In the scripture, we see things first established in the creation week. In six days, God created the heavens on the earth, and on the what? Seventh day, he rested. God set up the pattern in creation. Six days you work, seven days. The seventh day is to be a day of rest. You know me. I believe that the earth is around 6,000 years old. According to the scripture, we have been in existence for about 6,000 years. At the end of that 6,000 years, who comes? Jesus will return, and he will establish the day of rest, which is 1,000 years of the millennial kingdom on earth. The seventh day is the day of the Lord. It's the day of rest. It's the 1,000 years of the Lord on the earth. Oh, but there's more. Okay, you have Joseph. There were seven years of plenty, seven years of what? Famine. He told Pharaoh, right? Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. You've got the seven priests who in the seven trumpets that marched around Jericho every day for how many days? Seven days. On the seventh day, they marched around seven times. They blew the trumpets. The walls came tumbling down. Why is it? What's, what's the significance of this number seven? There's seven branches on the menorah, which is the lampstand that we're going to talk about later. The 70 weeks of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel, the final seven years of human history, is really what the, the book of Revelation is all about. Did you know that there are seven beatitudes in the book of Matthew? Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. There are seven of those. Did you know that there are seven I am statements in the book of John, in the gospel of John? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the light of the world. There's seven of those. Do you know that Jesus commanded us to forgive 70 times, seven times? Let me stop right here. I think it's interesting. What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. Some people say there's an, you know, you can forgive somebody up to 490 times, and then finally, okay, I can't forgive you anymore. Some people think that you just forgive them forever. You know what I think it means? I think it means in whatever situation that you have an offense and you need to seek forgiveness, you seek that until it's what? Complete. That's what Jesus is saying. Remember, the number seven is the number of what? Completeness. So you forgive somebody as many times as it takes until that situation is resolved, until it is complete. Again, understanding the number of seven is so very interesting. And then, I mean, I could go on and on and on. You can't see these. I'm sorry. These will be in your notes. But let me just share with you, just in the book of Revelation, listen to how many sevens there are. And again, these are just a few of them. All right. Seven churches, seven spirits, seven candlesticks, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven thousand people who died, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven vials, seven mountains, seven kings. Do you think the Lord wants us to know something about the number seven? Just a little bit, right? Guys, we'll get into more of that as we go. Here's the next thing I want you to see. The eternal nature is, the God's eternal nature is revealed in the three tenses of salvation. Now, what do you mean? The three tenses of salvation. All right? Look at what the scripture says. John to the seven churches. He says it in verse 4 and verse 8. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. 
Look at what he says again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Now, again, this may be a little bit difficult, guys. I'm sorry. But I do need to cover this with you real quickly. Now, there's one element. When we talk about God who was, who is, and who is to come, we know he is the everlasting God, right? He is eternal in nature. Here's something that will blow your mind. Sit, home, sit at home and try to think about that God doesn't have a beginning. He is always what? Existed. Think about that for a little while, and you'll need counseling later. He will always exist. This is who God is, right? Now, but there's something else going on here, is that part of our salvation, and we, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but you need to know that we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Amen. Real quick, and I've touched on this before. When you trust Jesus, you're born again and justified. That's in the what? Past. It's happened. It's over. It's settled. Okay, you can't change that. Once you're born again, you're his, okay? But you're now in the process of what? Being saved, sanctification. That's God making you more like Jesus. And then ultimately at the end, we will be saved. The last part of our salvation, praise God, hallelujah, is the glorification, the redemption of our bodies. Anybody get an amen on that? I get a new body. You will get a new body. Amen. So these are the three phases, the three tenses of salvation. You can go study that. It's very interesting. I'm not going to spend too much time there. But the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Now, who are the seven spirits of God? There's a couple of different ways to look at this. John to the seven churches and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So let's try to identify the seven spirits. I'm just going to keep it simple. Um, If you look at Revelation 4, 5, let me read that to you real quick. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Before the throne burned seven torches of fire. These are the seven spirits of God. Now, a lot of people read that and they're like, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that there are seven holy spirits? I don't think so. Are these seven angels? Are these seven spiritual beings around the throne? That's a possibility. I don't think that's the answer. Okay, remember, what does the number seven represent? Perfection, completion. I believe this is just another way of the Bible communicating to us that this is who? The Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit. Let me read uh, from Isaiah 11 real quick. This is a, one of those old, I'm going to just show you how the Old Testament gives us the answers to what's happening in the book of Revelation. Look at Isaiah 11 real quick. Isaiah 11, 1, it says, There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. All right, you ready? And the spirit of the Lord shall be on him, the spirit of wisdom. Understanding is three, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Isaiah 11 is probably given us the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then as he's communicated to us here in the book of Revelation, he's just called the seven spirits or the seven torches that are burning before the throne of God. Interestingly enough, what do we see on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came in what? In flames of fire. These these tongues of fire 
So he's, you know, he, the seven torches, the seven lampstands. Again, all of this stuff is, is meant to, to invoke images for us to, to kind of get a, a better picture of who the Holy Spirit is. But I think that's the best interpretation that we can get. All right, now let's, let's get into what the book of Revelation gives us here about Jesus. If you love Jesus, you'll love the book of Revelation. Amen. All right. He is our beloved son. He is the beloved son, excuse me, and our hope, our blessed hope. All right. So John's greeting, remember, this is just the greeting of the book, okay? In the greeting of the book of Revelation, we find, just so happens, how many distinct titles of Jesus? Oh, seven. Just answer seven, you'll probably get it. you got a good chance of getting right. John's greeting to the seven churches reveals seven distinct titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read it. John 1, excuse me, Revelation 1, 5 through 7. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, there's one, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn on account of him, even so. Amen. So what are the seven titles of Jesus? Faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loves us, the one who has redeemed us by his blood, the one who has made us a kingdom and priests, and the one coming with the clouds. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. Let's look at the faithful witness. The word here is martyr. Now, Jesus is the faithful martyr. Now, I don't want to necessarily say that the death of Jesus on the cross was a martyr's death in the sense that we understand our death as being martyr's death because the death of Jesus on the cross was the original plan of redemption by God before the foundation of the world. Listen to me. The death of Jesus is not a tragedy. It's God's greatest triumph. We don't look at the cross as a tragedy, okay? But he is the faithful witness in the sense that he did not love his life unto death. Jesus was willing to lay his life down, and therefore he is the faithful witness. Also, we know all of the different distinct titles of Jesus. He is the Word. Remember, John wrote that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He is the Word, okay? He is the truth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and for, it means he's faithful. Will, God, will Jesus ever lie to you? Never once. That means you can believe him. It means you can trust him. That's important to me. Okay, we, we will let each other down. We will break our promise. We will break our word. Jesus, he is the faithful witness. The testimony of Jesus is sure, and he is the ultimate martyr. He is the ultimate witness. Okay, now let's move on. The firstborn from the dead. What does this mean? Thankfully, the scripture gives us the answer. Jesus was born to die and to be raised to life. Why did God have to become a man? Because God had to what? He had to die. How does God die? He has to take on human form. So Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Okay, the author of life, 
died. That's the story of the gospel. Amazing. We, we, we take that for granted, but it is the essence of who Jesus Christ is. He is the first fruits from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. And it's important that we know Jesus is alive forevermore. All right, let's go through some scriptures. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him everything holds together. And he is the head of the body of the church. Listen, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his what? Of his cross. And so there we see the significance that Jesus died. So he's the firstborn from the dead. And look at what it says here in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And again, Christ is the firstfruits. Then at his coming, all who belong to Christ. So what is that saying? All right, just like Jesus received his resurrected body, when he comes, who's going to receive theirs? We are. Praise God. Amen. So he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstfruits from the dead. And he is alive forevermore. Let's move on. Jesus is the ruler of kings. He is the king of kings. He ascended to power on high. When Jesus, he left heaven as God the Son, came to suffer and die, was resurrected and ascended back to the right hand of the Father, which is the highest place of authority in the universe. He's the king. He's the king of kings. He's seated on his throne, and he is the ruler of all nations. Now, there is a little caveat here. I never would deny the power and authority that Jesus is king, and he is king right now, okay? But guys, I'm going to say something to you. The nations of this world are not in submission to him. So until he what? Comes back to destroy his enemies, to make everything right, to establish his what? Kingdom on the earth. There is a sense in that the world is still in rebellion to him. That doesn't take away the fact that he is the ruler of all kings on the earth. However, there is, it has not yet been completely fulfilled that Jesus is effectively ruling on the earth and all the nations of the earth are in submission to him. Very important that we understand that, okay? Let me share some scriptures from you. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, Second Chronicles. Look at Daniel 4. I love this. This is Nebuchadnezzar who was a mighty king in his day. He was the king of Babylon. Look at what he said after the Lord humbled him. Blessed be the Most High God and praise and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? This is coming from Nebuchadnezzar. Then Psalm 2, one of my favorite psalms. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Has, has that happened yet? Has Jesus broken the nations with a rod of iron yet? No, but he will. It is, as, it is as good as done. It's just a matter of time. And so that's Psalm 2. He will rule the nations and he will inherit the kingdoms as his inheritance. Psalm 110, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. You see why the book of Revelation isn't a very popular book? Talking about the Lord Jesus will shatter the earth and there will be corpses strewn everywhere. We don't like that. I don't like that. It's a, it's a very difficult image to try to process, but, but guys, it is written. It will happen. That's who he is coming back as. King of kings, Lord of lords, okay? I could go on and on. Uh, I got to skip through some of this. Uh, it says that uh, Jesus is until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and the only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Okay, so we're, we're kind of unpacking who Jesus is. He's the faithful witness. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. But we can't forget also that he's also the one who what? He loves us. Amen. Jesus, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. We cannot forget to sing that song. In the midst of all of this, he is the one who loved us. For God so loved the world, right? John 3, 16, we know the scripture. Look at Romans 5, 8. For God demonstrates, he shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, what did he do? Christ died for you and for me. Thank you, Lord. Guys, this is something that I must spend just a second on. You've got to have this settled. If you're in here today and you doubt for one second the love of God for you, you've got to get this right. And, here, and here's the reality. When we say that we don't believe that God loves us, Guys, we effectively are saying, I don't believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, God demonstrated his greatest act of what? Love. Far as I know, that happened about 2,000 years ago in history. So what that means for you and me today on a very practical way is that no matter what you are going through in your life, you may be living through hell right now. You may be going through very difficult times right now. You may be facing adverse circumstances that you've never faced right now. But I promise you, it is not because God doesn't love you. Amen. How can I say that with confidence? Because that has been settled he has demonstrated it. He has proven his love for us in the greatest way that he knows how. He came and he laid his life down for you. Amen. What else can he give? What else can God give for you? He gave it all. He gave his life. And this is what I'm trying to tell you guys, that if you don't have this part settled right here in your heart and you know that that cross was meant for you and he took your place because he loves you, guys, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it through life in general, much less make it through the great tribulation. 
Because it is going to be the love of God that is in our hearts that is going to be that sustaining strength and power that we need to be reminded when things are going sideways and everything around us is falling apart. It's not because God has left me because he doesn't love me anymore. That's not what's happening. And we've got to be settled in that. So he, that's why I think, I love the book of Revelation because like, yeah, all this stuff that, you know, we're, we're scared about or we're worried about, but he reminds us right here, he's the one that what? He loves us. Never forget that. I love this verse right here. Listen to Romans 8. This is why I love Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? There's a great possibility that this generation may live through all of that right there. That's why, that's why the, the book of Revelation brings whole new meaning to something like Romans chapter 8. Because we read Romans chapter 8 and like, well, I ain't never been any, through any of that stuff, so what, what's the point? But God say, no, what if you are going through this? You got to go back to his what? His love. That nothing can separate you from his love. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and this is the big emphatic, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What's the call to the book of Revelation? For he who conquers to him who overcomes. How do we overcome and conquer? Through the love of Jesus Christ. That's what it says right there. For I'm sure that neither death or life or angels nor rulers or things present or things to come nor powers, not height or depth or anything else in all creation, not the devil himself, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Hey guys, you better have that settled. Please have that settled in your heart. Don't let anything convince you otherwise because he's already proven it once and for all. Jesus Christ is the one who redeemed us as we move on. What is that idea of redemption? This kind of goes back to that three tenses of salvation. Okay, I'll give it to you this way. Jesus has redeemed us from the penalty of sin. What's the wages of sin? Death. He redeemed us from that. The penalty is no longer on our account. Praise God, hallelujah. That's past tense. Can that ever change? No. In other words, when you stand before God and he pulls out the account of your life, there's going to be no sin on your account. Praise God, hallelujah. That means you're justified. You've been redeemed from the penalty of sin. Now he is redeeming us in the present tense from the power of sin. Anybody struggle with sin in the room? It still has some power over us, doesn't it? But the process of being redeemed by God is that he's taking that away. He's taking the urge. He's taking the, the control. He's taking the power of sin. And he's, he's making us more like Jesus Christ. That's what's happening right now. But there's going to be a day when he will redeem us from the very what? Presence of sin. There will be a day when we are with God and he is our God and we are his people where there won't even be the presence of sin anymore. That's the fullness of God's redemption. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have what? Redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Guys, this is who Jesus Christ is. He has made us 
kings and priests. He's made us a kingdom of priests. He's the kings and he's the great high priest. And Jesus, when he redeemed us, he, 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 he brought us into a relationship with himself so that we would be different than the rest of the world. This is what it says in Exodus 19. This, this started all the way back on Mount Sinai. It says, now, therefore, if indeed you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people and all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of what? Priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Peter said it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now listen, this is why we are a kingdom of priests. So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Did you hear that? A priest is a mediator. A priest is the one that goes between God and the people. So if you are a priest, this is why we believe in the priesthood of all believers. That's why I disagree with the Catholic doctrine that we need a priest. I don't have to go to confess to a priest my sins. Because I am a priest. I don't need a priest. I am a priest. You, if you are in Jesus, you are a what? You're a priest and you're to represent him to the rest of the world. That's our role and our function and our purpose. Jesus Christ is the one who makes us a kingdom of priests. And then we'll spend most of our time here as we close on the last title that's given to Jesus. Because I mentioned this a little bit last week. I want to just show you. I want to build a case for a second about what does this business mean about Jesus coming with the clouds. All right, now... I've, I've had some conversations with people that, that get lost in the weeds, per se, because they'll say things like this. Well, well Brother Marcus, you know, it says in Revelation 1-7 that Jesus is coming with the clouds. But then in, in Matthew 24, it says that he's coming on the clouds. And then, then in, Revela- in another passage, it talks about coming in the clouds, you know. And these are all, and they try to make a case that these are all what? Different comings. <laughs> Guys, it's not about the preposition. Is he coming with the clouds? Is he coming on the clouds? Is he coming in the clouds? It's it's the clouds, right? It's the clouds that we need to emphasize, not in, with, on, or whatever. So this is what I want to do. I want to build a case for you this morning about what this is not a New Testament idea. The idea of him coming on the clouds is an Old Testament idea. It has its origin in the Old Testament. What's even more fascinating is that when you start reading the prophets in the Old Testament, their expectation was that because there was no Yeshua, the Messiah yet, right? They didn't know who he was. They knew he was coming, but they didn't know who he was. So do you know what the Old Testament expectation was? That Yahweh is coming on cloud. That means I'm talking about the great I am. They're the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh, the Lord, is coming. On the clouds. So who's coming, Yahweh or Jesus? Okay? Yes. And, and we can unpack that and get into all the nitty-gritty details about the Trinitarian nature of God. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You explain that. I don't have time to get into that right now. But when it says that he is coming on the clouds, it is specifically talking about the Son who is the expressed image of who? The Father. So the Son is the one coming 
on the clouds to judge the earth, to reestablish God's kingdom in, uh, excuse me, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want to just give you my little, I'm going to give you my interpretation. Because I love this. A lot of people ask me, what does it mean that every eye will see him? Well, don't you all have Fox News, right? All you got to do is turn on cable when Jesus returns and you'll see it. Is that, is that what it's talking about? I don't know. Will there be television broadcasts of the Lord Jesus? I don't know. Here, let me give you my interpretation. This is just measly old me, okay? The return of Jesus is a complex event. It's not like he just appears. Here I am. And it's like, I'm in Jerusalem. No, no, no. There, again, I don't have time to get into the passages. Here's my, here's my interpretation. How will it be that every eye will see Jesus coming? Number one, the veil between heaven and earth, the veil between the physical and the spiritual is going to be what? Lifted. So we will be seeing things that we've never seen before, first of all. And it was, it's going to terrify people, honestly. But here's, here's my perspective. I think when Jesus, the sign of the Son of Man as he comes on the clouds, with the clouds, in the clouds, he's coming. I don't think necessarily it's, it's outside the realm of possibility that Jesus is going to circumnavigate the whole what? I don't think it's outside. In other words, he's not just going to come straight down. Possibility that the sky is torn open, rolled back like a scroll. We begin to see the spiritual heaven coming with Jesus leading the charge. And I think that he possibly may even make a whole tour of the earth so that every what? Every eye will see him before he lands on the ground to come to do what he has to do. Again, that's just me, but that's my interpretation. How do we understand this to be every eye will see him? All right, now let's, let's build the case. You ready? Zechariah 12. Now, there's two things in this passage. Let me back up. There's two things in this passage you need to pay attention to. The first is the clouds. The second is the specific phrase, all the tribes of the earth will well. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why are, gonna, why are people going to be wailing and mourning when they see Jesus coming? Because for people who have rejected the Messiah, it's the worst day that they could ever imagine. They're going to try to hide, and there's going to be no place for them to go. But there's another application about this. That is a specific quote from Zechariah 12. That's why you got to know your Old Testament. Zechariah 12, let me read it to you, verses 9 through 11. And on that day, you see that over and over again. What day? Well, the day when Jesus comes back. On that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Where's the final battle take place? Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will what? Mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Guys, there will be a remnant of Jews of the house of Judah. There will be a remnant that will survive the great tribulation and they will see Messiah coming in the clouds in all power and great glory. And it says that they will mourn for him, but their mourning will be a mourning of repentance and they're going to be saved. Okay? 
That's what this passage is quoting from Zechariah. Jesus told us this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Amen. Ezekiel told us that when he saw a vision of the Lord, that his appearance was like that of a bow in the cloud on the day of rain. We see Psalm 104. Listen to what it says. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. Listen, he makes the what? Clouds his chariot. means he's riding on the clouds. He rides on the wings of the wind. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Exodus 24, what do we see? On Mount Sinai, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Oh, and on the what? Seventh day. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the what? Cloud. So when the Lord came to Sinai, he came on a cloud, in a cloud. The cloud descended. It covered the whole mountain. Okay? These are all pictures of what will happen when Jesus returns. I love this. Psalm 18. David was amazingly inspired. Listen to what he said. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water, out of the brightness before him. Hailstones, coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. That's Jesus coming with the clouds. Psalm 97, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. I could go on and on and on. This is the other passage from Zechariah 12. Daniel 7 is the other passage that when, whenever a Jewish, when John wrote this passage and he said he's coming on the clouds, everybody would have immediately gone to Daniel chapter 7. They knew Daniel chapter 7. They knew this was a specific prophecy about the Son of Man. And listen to what he says. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. He was presented before him. He was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Has that happened yet? Hasn't happened yet. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. We shall not pass away. We shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Guys, when it says that he's coming on the clouds, it is specifically talking about the return of the Lord in power and on glory. Excuse me, in power and in glory. Isaiah 19, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud to Egypt. And behold, the Lord will come in fire in his chariots like the whirlwind. Isaiah 66. Nahum 1, two. I, I'm, look, these are just a few. I could, give you, I could give you so many more. I just want to show you this is an Old Testament idea. Look at what it says in Nahum 1, 2. His way is a whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are what? The dust of his feet. A cloud took him out of their sight. This is Acts 1. And then the angel told the disciples, hey, this Jesus that was taken up from you into heaven in a cloud, he will come in the what? Very same way. 
So again, this is a case that I'm building for Jesus coming in the clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, The Lord will descend with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together to meet him in the cloud, in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. There's clouds. We meet him there as he comes. I could go on and on. Last one, I think, Matthew 26. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Amen. Guys, that's going to be very important that we take that with us as we go and we look more into the return. Of, but here, the, if you get anything out of that, it's this. Don't worry about in, on, with. It's the clouds. It's God coming. It's the glory of the Lord in power and glory so that every eye will what? Every eye will see. It's not secret. It's not hidden. It is a public what? Public event. Very important that we understand that. Now, as we wrap up, I'm going to look at Alpha and Omega real quick. Jesus said, I am the Alpha, excuse me, the Lord said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. Now, Jesus is the Alpha. He's, he is literally the Alpha male, right? Jesus is the Alpha because he is the what? Creator. He's also the omega because he's what? Judge. Are y'all staying with me? Jesus is creator, therefore he's the beginning. He's also the end because we're all going to have to stand in judgment. Okay? But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He is also the central figure because he is our what? Redeemer. Now stay with me, guys. This is my last point. We love Jesus as creator because that demonstrates his power. We love Jesus as judge because that demonstrates his holiness. But we love Jesus as redeemer because that demonstrates his what? His love. Why is it that the cross is what holds everything together? You understand? He is creator and he's the coming judge. But guys, it is the central point in human history is the cross. Because at the cross is where Jesus Christ stepped in and proved that he was the one that has purchased salvation for everyone. That is why the cross is what holds everything together. That's why we can trust and rest in the merciful love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to ask our praise team to come on up. We do have one more song to sing. I want to show you, again, this is that interesting dynamic between the Father and the Son. Because the Father, the Lord Almighty, the Father says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. But do you know who else says it? Jesus also says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Look at what he says in Revelation 1. For I am the first and the last. I'm the living one, the one who died. Who's that? That's Jesus. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the what? Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Who's that? That's Jesus. So who's the Alpha and the Omega? Is it the Father or is it Jesus? It's both. Again, this is expressing the deity, the divine nature of the Son. He is the Alpha 
and the Omega. He declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. What do you do with this message? What are you going to do with it as you take it away? The first thing that we should do, guys, is that we should marvel at the works of God. He is creator. He is judge. He is redeemer. We marvel at him. We give him glory for who he is and what he has done. He is the, he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He is the only one worthy of all honor and praise and glory. So let us worship the king. Let us worship Jesus who has loved us and set us free from sin and death. And guys, if there's anything I want to ask you to do today is that we need to repent. We need to repent. We need to draw near to God today. We need to seek him right now while he still may be what? Isn't that what the scripture says? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Don't, don't wait. There is a point where it's too late, where either your life is cut short or whether he returns or whatever it may be, is that you seek the Lord today while he may still be found so that you will not be the one shrinking back in fear when he comes with the clouds in power and in glory. We sang that song just a minute ago. I'll stand with arms what? High and heart abandoned. When Jesus returns, there's going to be two kind of people in the world. One group will lift up their heads for their redemption draws near, and they will stand in, in praise and glory for their Lord, their Redeemer has come. You know what everybody else will do? They're going to run and try to hide. They're going to try to find the rocks and the caves and the mountains. They're going to say, mountains, please just fall on me. Because I don't want to have to see the wrath of the Lamb. And there's a question that is asked at the end of Revelation 6. Who can stand? Will you be able to stand on that day? That's the biggest question that we need to answer. And so guys, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. I want to thank you all for being good students. I want to encourage you to continue to dig. Send me messages. Ask me questions. Shoot me an email if you have a question. I'm going to continue to do the best job I can to get these, uh, all these resources out to you so that you have everything that you need to grow deeper. But I'm going to say this last thing. Listen, and I said this in our small group. If you're studying the book of Revelation just to get all this information so that you can tell everybody how smart you are, you're missing the point. Amen. We study the book of Revelation because it reveals who? Jesus. And the more Jesus is revealed to us, the more we love him. That's why we study the book of Revelation. I want to know him more so that I can love him more. Amen. And that's what this next song is all about. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for being so merciful. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the faithful witness, the ruler of the kings of the earth. You're the one who died. You're the firstborn from the dead. You're the one who loves us. You've made us a kingdom priest, and you're the one who is coming on the clouds of heaven. And so, Heavenly Father, I just pray that your people today would make sure today that, that they have that deep, intimate relationship with you. And that, Lord, that no one here would leave this place today, Lord, until they make sure that they have the, the love of God settled in their heart. That there would be nothing in all creation that would cause them to doubt your love for them. Because, Jesus, you have proven that once and for all when you went to the cross as our sacrifice, as our substitute. And so, Lord, we now sing in faith and gratitude that the more we seek you, Lord, the more we will find you and the more we will love you. And we pray all this in Jesus' holy name.
And all God's people said,